Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Heather from the Renaissance English History Podcast, englandcast.com. Thanks so much for downloading this virtual tour of Cambridge. I hope hearing about the history and the music of Cambridge will inspire you to go yourself if you haven't already planned a trip. If you have planned a trip, I hope it helps you as you plan your trip. And if you're already there, please take pictures and show them to me. I'm passionate about the space where history and travel and music all come together. And there's no place more magical to play in that space than in Cambridge. It's a wonderful, magical place. And I'm going to be doing more of these virtual tours for other cities, but I had to do Cambridge first because it is such a magical, magical space where history and music come together with travel like no other place that I've ever been to. Thank you so much for downloading it, and I hope you really enjoy it. coming with me to Cambridge. So awesome. I'm so excited to travel with you. If you are actually literally taking this to Cambridge, yay, please take pictures and put them on the Facebook page or tweet them to me. I would love to see your pictures. And you know what, if you're listening to this in your car, on the freeway, on the 210605 interchange near Irwindale, California, or if you're sitting on the N340 in Marbella, whatever it looks like, if you're in your kitchen doing the dishes, if you're ironing, send me a picture of that too, right? I would love to see what people are doing while they're listening to this. So a note on this audio tour, I'm producing this in October, 2016, and As of right now, all of the information is up to date, and it's my goal to redo these tours yearly, but please always make sure that you double check the information that you hear here when it comes to things like opening times, bus routes, timetables, etc. I cannot be held responsible if a bus isn't running when you're visiting or a service isn't being held, just the normal legal disclaimer stuff, okay? Just take a couple minutes and double check all the opening times, just to make sure you aren't disappointed, okay? So first off, you have to know that Cambridge is one of my favorite cities. I've been going there for over 15 years now, and it's small enough to be accessible while still being quite cosmopolitan. And the music and the history are just extra goodness, and it's just a wonderful place. Part of what I love about Cambridge is the journey from London. So I'm assuming that you're going to leave from London. You're likely going to go from King's Cross Station. You can go from Liverpool Street, but I think King's Cross is more fun. King's Cross is super snazzy now, way more snazzy than it was when I lived in London. It's undergone a huge construction project in the past few years, 
And it's lost a lot of the grimy grit that I really loved about it. But you're still really steeped in history there. King's Cross was built in 1851. It's actually built on the site of a fever and smallpox hospital. So that's kind of a random fun fact. Harry Potter fans know King's Cross from the train to Hogwarts. And they actually have a fun little photo op area where platform nine and three quarters would be. You can take a picture of yourself walking into the wall with your luggage cart because Harry Potter rules. I highly recommend getting a hot chocolate from the AMT espresso cart. There's also a large part of manger if you want to get snacks for the train journey. Um, the journey is about 45 minutes on a fast train. If I were you, though, I would take a slower train. There's three trains. There's three types of trains. You can get the super fast one. You can get the super slow one that stops everywhere and takes like an hour and 45 minutes. Or you can take the one that's in the middle, takes about an hour and 15 minutes. It stops like maybe five or seven places. The fast ones tend to be filled with Cambridge professors and students And it really just goes so quickly that you just can't enjoy it. At least that's what I think. If you're in a rush, by all means, take the fast train. If you're on a slower one, you're going to stop at Welland Garden City. This is just a super side note. So the train stops at Welland Garden City. If you're sitting on the left side of the train, just after Welland Garden City, there's this really deep valley. The train's really high and there's a deep valley next to a river And in the summer months, it looks really, really lush. And I've always thought that it looks like a really nice place to have a picnic, but I've never actually had one there. I really should go on one. If you're anywhere close to Welland Garden City, maybe you can go on a picnic there. I would really love that. I don't think I actually will go because it might really suck. And then my entire vision of this gorgeous place would be shot to pieces. But anyway, that was like a super side note about the train to Cambridge. So while we're on the train, let me tell you about Cambridge's history. We're going to go up to the early modern period. Certainly, if you want to go further than that, there are plenty of resources, but we're going to be here together for an hour as it is. So I'm just going to go up to the early modern period. Even though Cambridge is most famous now for the university, it was already old when the university was founded. There's archaeological evidence for pre-Roman activity in the area to the north of the river on Castle Hill. The first town was built by the Romans on the edge of the Fenland. This whole area was swampy and marshy. This was before the draining of the fens and the reclamation of the soil. It was almost like wetlands. The river Cam was easier to cross here, and so a town was built. The river at the time was known as the Granta, and the area around was a port town. The area around Modelin Bridge is still known as Keyside, and now it's a spot where you can rent a punt for a river tour, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Castle Hill is northwest of the city center. It's close to where the old British village would be, and there was a fort nearby, and it was constructed around 70 AD. Within 50 years, it was converted to civilian use. There is evidence of a larger Roman settlement, including farmsteads, and a village in Newnham, which is a district of Cambridge. There's a church, St. Peter's Church, halfway up Castle Hill, that has pieces of Roman tiles in its walls. The Romans left Britain around 410. The location may have been abandoned by the Britons at that point, though sometimes it is identified as Cairgrouth, and it's listed in the history of the Britons among the 28 cities of Britain. By the end of the 5th century, the Anglo-Saxons had occupied the area, and the area was something was called something close to Granta Bridge. Later on in the Anglo-Saxon times, the main settlement was on Castle Hill because it could be easily defended. There's another church closer to King's College, St. Benedict's, and the tower of that is Saxon, and it's the oldest standing building in Cambridge. Because of the river, Cambridge has really good trade links. They even traded to Europe and across the Fenlands. By the 7th century, the town was losing its importance, and the Venerable Bede describes it as a, quote, little ruined city containing the burial site of Queen Ethelreda. 
And she was more well-known in Ely as helping to found the Ely Cathedral. So Cambridge was on this border between the East and Middle Anglian kingdoms. There was East Anglia and Middle Anglia, and Cambridge was right on the border. And settlement slowly was expanding um, on both sides of the river. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle records the Vikings arriving in 875, By 878 in Cambridge, Dane law had been imposed. That was the Viking rule. Becoming a Viking town had one really big upshot. You suddenly had access to trade routes all over the place. The Vikings were trading as far as Greenland and Newfoundland and Iceland and all throughout Europe. So they were able to be part of this network. The town center moved from Castle Hill to the area we now know as Keyside. And one of the churches near Keyside is St. Clement's. St. Clement was a common saint for Danish settlements. So that shows the Danish influence. One thing about Cambridge strategically was that it was the final river crossing until you got to King's Lynn, which was another 50 miles away. And like I said, because of the river and the port, Cambridge had trading links to France and the Low Countries, And since they also had a market, it became a very wealthy city. After the Vikings left and the Saxons came back to power, they built churches, wharves, merchant houses. After the Norman invasion, the Normans built a castle on Castle Hill in 1068. Cambridge was a strategic location because Hereward the Wake was leading a protest against the Normans in Ely, which is only a few miles away. Sometime between 1120 and 1131, the first town charter was granted by Henry I. It gave Cambridge monopoly of water traffic and tolls, and it recognized the borough court. The Round Church, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, dates from this period. It was at this point in the 13th century that the university was founded. The oldest college still in existence is Peterhouse, that was founded in 1284. The Black Death hit Cambridge really hard in 1349. There aren't a lot of records left, but at King's Hall alone, 16 out of 40 scholars died. The part of town that was north of the river was almost completely wiped out. Then there was a second bout of the Black Death in 1361, and a letter from the Bishop of Ely suggested that the two parishes in Cambridge should join together since there weren't enough people to fill even one church. More than a third of English clergy died in the Black Death, and so four new colleges were established at the university to train new clergymen. They were Gonville Hall, Trinity Hall, Corpus Christi, and Clare. The town charter was revised in 1382 when the town participated in the Peasants' Revolt, and they lost many of the liberties that they had enjoyed. The charter transferred supervision of baking and brewing weights and measures from the town to the university. The Chapel of King's College, that most iconic scene of Cambridge, was begun in 1446 by Henry VI, and we're going to talk about it a lot more when we go to King's but it was completed in 1515. Its history was linked greatly with the Wars of the Roses. And interestingly, the choir framework, the screen, the wooden screen has carved H and A all around it for Henry and Anne Boleyn, who had just become queen as it was being finished. There were repeated outbreaks of plague throughout the 16th century. And so in the early 1600s, sanitation and fresh water finally came to Cambridge, when the Hobson's conduit was constructed, water was brought from nine wells at the foot of Gog and Magog Hills into the center of town. Early in the English Civil War, it was the headquarters of the Eastern Counties Association, which administered the regional East Anglican Army, the mainstay of the parliamentarian military effort before the new model army was formed. Oliver Cromwell himself received control of the town through Parliament in 1643, and he had gone to Sydney Sussex College. The town's castle was fortified and troops were stationed there, and some of the bridges were destroyed to help the defenses. And Royalist forces came within two miles of the town in 1644, 
but the defenses were never used and the garrison left the next year. So there you are, Cambridge history in a nutshell until the mid-17th century. Let's move on now and actually visit these places, right? So you come into Cambridge Station, and that has also changed a lot since I lived in London. It's a lot nicer. It has a really nice waiting room. There's a Marks and Spencer's food shop just on the inside, and there's another AMT Espresso cart. I'm really obsessed with you getting a hot chocolate at AMT Espresso. That's all there is to it. When you leave the station, check out all the bikes. It's a really quintessential Cambridge thing, all of those bikes. As for getting into town, you'll probably want to take a bus or a taxi unless you really want to walk and it's a gorgeous day. So the walk to the historic areas, it's about a mile and a half or so. It'll take you 20 minutes, half an hour. The cabs queue just outside the station. You can't miss them. A cab ride will cost you around seven, eight pounds maybe. To catch a bus, you're going to turn to the left outside the station. You're going to look for the bus stands about 100 yards up the road. Ask a person at the station if you can't tell where they are. You're going to want a city bus. And the numbers, of course, check the bus stands, of course. But the numbers that'll take you right into the city center are 1, 3, 7, or 8. Again, 1, 3, 7, or 8. If you have questions about the bus routes, always ask the driver. And the cost is £1.60 for a single journey. So you're going to be dropped off in the middle of the hubbub of St. Andrew's Street. And there is, of course, plenty of great shopping here. You'll find all of the normal high street stores, both in the streets around the market, as well as in the shopping mall, the Lion Yard. But I suspect that you're going to want to forego the regular high street shops and head towards the old market, which still has stalls. You might hear buskers playing music. That could be your first introduction to music in Cambridge. What a great introduction it is. Busking goes back to medieval times when a wandering minstrel or bard would travel around from town to town, acting not only as entertainers, but they would also carry news and they would carry messages to different people. So buskers aren't licensed in Cambridge, but they are encouraged to follow certain guidelines and you will likely really love listening to them. So be sure to tip them generously. As you wander into the market area, what used to be known as Market Hill, you will see stalls selling everything from fresh food to prepared food to incense and hemp bags with pot leaf decorations. This is a tradition that has been going on since Saxon times. Well, probably not the hemp bags, but there's been a market here for over a thousand years. You can wander around and smell the incense, the foods, get a coffee, and enjoy being part of a tradition of people shopping and strolling here for millennia. In 1614, like I said, the marketplace branch of the Hobson's Conduit was completed. It brought fresh water to the market fountain that was right in the center of the market. That fountain isn't there anymore because in 1849, there was a fire and Market Square was redeveloped. The original structure of the conduit was moved to South Cambridge in 1856, and most of the fountain was demolished in 1953. In 1960, the flow to that branch of the conduit was completely cut off when the Lion Yard Shopping Center was developed. At the west end of the market, just as you enter onto King's Parade, you'll see Great St. Mary's Church. Great St. Mary's, or GSM as it's called, is the University Church for the University of Cambridge. It's also a parish church for the Diocese of Ely. Because of its role within the university, it has a small but unique mention within the rules system. University officers have to live within 20 miles of GSM, and undergraduates have to live within three. The first mention of the church is in 1205, when King John presented a Thomas de Chimely to the rectory. The church on the site of the current one was mostly destroyed by fire in 1290, and then it was rebuilt. Now, sadly, at the time, the fire was blamed on the Jewish population in the city, and that resulted in the synagogue being closed. Early on, the church was the property of the king, but in 1342, it was passed to King's Hall. That's a college that doesn't exist anymore, and King's Hall actually morphed into Trinity, and that's who owns it, who's owned it since. 
In the Middle Ages, it was the official gathering spot for meetings and debates for the university. But in 1730, the Senate House was built across the street, and that took the place of the church. The building that's there now was built between 1478 and 1519, and the tower was finished in 1608. And you can go up and have amazing views all over Cambridge from the tower. Both Richard III and Henry VII helped pay for the cost of construction, and the great Erasmus preached here. Also, there's a story about a Martin Bucer. We're going to talk about him again in a little bit, but he was a major influencer of Cranmer and the Book of Common Prayer. He's buried here. Now, under Queen Mary, his his corpse was burnt in the marketplace. But then under Elizabeth, the dust from the place of burning was replaced in the church, and now it's under a brass floor plate. The church is open Monday to Saturday from 10 to 5, and on Sunday, there's a full roster of services starting at 8 a.m. Choral Matins is at 11.15. Choral Evensong is at 5.30. And you can Google Great St. Mary's Cambridge, or you can go to gsm.cam.ac.uk to get more information. So now we're going to get more into the college history. There are actually 31 colleges that are part of the University of Cambridge, and I'm not going to go into detail for each one of them because we'd be here forever. <laughs> there are, though, there are 16 colleges that were founded between 1284 and 1596. They are considered the old colleges. Then there was a little break um, with no colleges being founded again until 1800, So there are 15 new colleges that were founded between 1800 and 1977. I'm just going to go through a few of the older ones. First, the beginning. The beginning of the beginning is Peterhouse. It's a walk from where you are now. So before we get started, let's just have you stand outside Great St. Mary's and look across the road with the bikers going past and all the tourists going past and look at the magnificent King's College Chapel across the road. This street is King's Parade, and it runs through the most historic parts of Cambridge, linking many of the older colleges together. So turn left and start walking down King's Parade towards Peterhouse. As you walk, I'm going to tell you the history of this road. Look around at all the lovely shops and the tea places, Later, when we pass by here again on our way up towards Trinity and Quayside, you'll be able to go to one of my favorite books and music shops just up to the right. But for now, turn left. Actually, before you turn left, I want you to just look to your right. And there's a bookstore, the University of Cambridge Press bookstore. That's actually at the site where there was Bows and Bows, a bookseller and publishing company. They were at number one Trinity Street. And it was right at the corner of King's Parade and St. Mary Street. It's apparently its claim was it was the oldest bookshop in the United Kingdom and books had been sold on the site since 1581. Bows and Bows closed in 1986. There was another shop, Sherrett and Hughes, that closed in 1992. And since then, the site has been the Cambridge University Press bookshop. So if you look down there, that's where books have been sold since 1581. And you'll pass it when we head up that way. But for now, you're going to turn left. King's Parade is one long road, which to the south continues as Trumpington Street, and to the north, it's Trinity and St. John Street. And in addition to a lot of tourists, you're also going to see a lot of cyclists and a lot of students. King's College is on the west side of the street, The chapel and the Senate House dominate the view. A famous spot on King's Lane just to the west of the parade was the White Horse Tavern. The White Horse Tavern was a 16th century meeting place for Protestants to talk about Lutheran ideas. And they started doing that as early as 1521. So only a couple of years after Martin Luther. When the King's College screen was extended in 1870, the tavern was actually demolished, and there's now a blue plaque in a college court to commemorate it. So now you've walked down the whole way, and you're outside of Peterhouse. Most everything in Peterhouse is off limits, and it's only available to the university students and faculty. But it's still worth a poke around, because you can go into the chapel and the hall. In 1280, letters patent from Edward I allowed a Hugo de Balsam 
to keep a number of scholars in the hospital of St. John, where they were to live according to the scholars of Merton, Oxford. There was a disagreement between the scholars and the brethren of the hospital, and both requested separation. So in 1284, Balsam transferred the scholars to the present site and purchased two houses just outside the Trumpington Gate to take care of a master and 14 worthy but impoverished fellows. In the mid-16th century, there was a master called Andrew Pern. He was really interesting because he managed to walk a very fine tightrope religiously. He was favored by both Mary I, who gave him the deanery of Ely, and Elizabeth I. So how he managed to get on both of their good sides is beyond me. But there was a contemporary joke that the letters on the weather vane of St. Peter's Church could represent Andrew Pern Papist or Andrew Pern Protestant, according to which way the wind was blowing. He had been close to the reformist Regis Chair of Divinity, the previously mentioned Martin Booser, and later as Vice Chancellor of the University, he was the one who would have to have Booser's bones exhumed and burnt in the market square. John Fox, in his Acts and Monuments, singled this out and he called it shameful railing. There's actually a hole burnt in the middle of the relevant page in Pern's own copy of Fox's book. Pern died in 1589, and he left a big legacy to the college. It funded a number of fellowships and scholarships and bequeathed a huge collection of books. And the collection and rare volumes that have been added to it since then is now known as the Perrin Library. Skipping forward hundreds of years, the college was actually the first in the university to have electric lighting installed when Lord Kelvin provided it for the hall and combination room to celebrate the college's 600th anniversary in 1883-84. It was the second building in the country to get electric lighting after the Palace of Westminster. So having rambled about in Peterhouse a bit, let's move back out and check out Queens, which is right up the road. Queen's College was founded in 1448 by Margaret of Anjou. She was the queen of Henry VI, who would found King's College. And then it was refounded in 1465 by Elizabeth Woodville, the queen of Edward IV. So this dual foundation is actually reflected in the name's spelling. It's Queen's S apostrophe, not Queen's apostrophe S. Although the full name is the Queen's apostrophe S, the Queen's College of St. Margaret and St. Bernard, commonly called Queen's Apostrophe College in the University of Cambridge. So I'm not kidding. This whole thing is in quotes. The Queen's College of St. Margaret and St. Bernard, commonly called Queen's College in the University of Cambridge. That's its name. It has some of the most recognizable buildings in Cambridge, and the college spans both sides of the River Cam, and they colloquially call it the light side and the dark side. And there's the world-famous mathematical bridge that connects the two. In 1446, Andrew Dockett obtained a charter from King Henry VI to found St. Bernard's College on a site that's now part of St. Catherine's College. A year later, the charter was revoked, and Dockett obtained a new charter from the king to found St. Bernard's College on the present site of the Old Court and Cloister Court. Finally, after all of this, in 1448, Henry VI granted his wife, Margaret of Anjou, the lands of St. Bernard's College to build a new college. (laughs) There was a lot of building of new colleges going on. So she was to build a college called Queen's College of St. Margaret and St. Bernard. And on the 15th of April, 1448, Sir John Wenlock, Chamberlain to Queen Margaret, laid the foundation stone at the southeast corner of the chapel. Of course, soon after the Wars of the Roses began raging, and then when the Yorkists had control, Margaret was no longer the queen. In 1460, the library, chapel, and gatehouse of the President's Lodge were completed, and the chapel was licensed for service. In 1477 and 1484, Richard III made large endowments to the college. They were later taken away by Henry VII after he defeated Richard at Bosworth. And between that time and the early 1600s, there were a lot of improvements made and new buildings constructed, including the Walnut Tree Building, which was completed in 1618. 
Since then, the college has refurbished most of its old building and it keeps expanding. During the English Civil War, the college sent all of its silver to help the king. As a result, the president and fellows were ejected from their posts. But in 1660, the president was restored. And then in 1777, a fire in the Walnut Tree Building destroyed the upper floors, which had to be rebuilt. And then in 1795, the college was really badly flooded, and there was waist-deep water in the cloisters. So you can actually visit. The college is open to visitors all year, except during the pre-examination study period, the examination period, ceremonial days, and Christmas and Boxing Day. So check the schedule before you go. There's an entrance fee of three pounds per visitor, and you also get a guidebook for that, a little printed guide. So let's move back up to King's. We're going to go back up King's Parade to the college. The Chapel of King's College is, of course, one of the most iconic landmarks in Cambridge. As I said, it's arguably one of the most famous colleges in the world, especially for those of us who are into the music of the choir. Before you get there, though, I want to take you on a little side trip. Just where Trumpington Street meets King's Parade, I want you to turn right onto Bennett Street. It's right the way you're headed. This is going to take you to St. Bennett's Church. It's abbreviated for St. Benedict's. And most of the church, parts of the church, including the tower, are Anglo-Saxon. It's the oldest church in Cambridgeshire, and it's the oldest building in Cambridge. So you should definitely have a little look around there and check that out. So then you're going to go back out to King's Parade, and you're going to check out King's College. The King's College of Our Lady and St. Nicholas in Cambridge was founded in 1441 by King Henry VI, who has come down through the ages known for his piety and for founding a lot of colleges. He provided for provost and 70 poor scholars at the time, and at first, scholarships were restricted to students from Eton College. Henry was only 19 when he laid the first stone on Passion Sunday in 1441. At the time, the town was still a port, and it was still quite marshy. So to make way for his college, he exercised a compulsory purchase in the center of medieval Cambridge. He leveled houses, shops, lanes, and even a church between the river and the high street, which is now King's Parade. It took three years to purchase and clear the land. Initially, he only wanted to have 12 students, which was the number of apostles, But then he decided to expand that to 70, which represented the 70 early evangelists chosen by Jesus. And he chose them exclusively from Eton. He drew up detailed instructions for Eton and Kings at both places. His first concern was the chapel. And he made sure that Kings College Chapel would be without equal in size and beauty. And I think he definitely succeeded with that. No other college had a chapel that was built on such a scale, and it was modeled on the plan of a cathedral choir, and the architect was Henry VI, Master Mason Reginald Ely. The foundation stone of the chapel was laid on the Feast of St. James in 1446 on the 25th of July, and it was the first step in his plan for a great court. The chapel was going to form the north side. He explained everything in his will and intent of 1448, but only the chapel was ever completed. In 1445, the Wars of the Roses broke out when Richard, Duke of York, challenged his right to the throne. And the story of the building of the chapel and the Wars of the Roses are linked linked together similarly to Queen's College. For the first 11 years of unrest, the building continued under Henry's patronage, even though the annual grant from the king's family's estates became irregular and then ceased. But then in 1461, Henry was taken prisoner. And on hearing that, the workmen packed up and went home, a half-cut stone, it said, where they left it. And it was eventually used as a foundation stone for neighboring Gibbs building in 1724. That's an interesting story. After 15 years of building, The foundations of the chapel had been laid and the walls rose irregularly 
from east to west. And you can actually tell the difference. Uh, you can see the difference between the older stone, which was magnesium limestone, which was from a quarry in Tadcaster in Yorkshire that belonged to the college. It was used for the, the early phase. And you can see it on really dry days in the summer. You can see the difference between the two different stones. Henry was murdered in the Tower of London on the 21st of May in 1471. He had, of course, inherited England and France from his father, and he wound up losing them both. But he had founded two of England's greatest colleges. And given what we know about Henry VI, I think he probably would have been happy with that. Edward IV, the Yorkist, he passed on to the college a little of the money that Henry had intended for the chapel, but very little building was done in the 22 years between Henry's imprisonment and the death of Edward IV in 1483. Work began again through Richard III, who of course was later depicted as the sinister hunchback that Shakespeare made him out to be. But he gave instructions that the building should go on with all possible dispatch and to press workmen in all possible hands, provide material and imprison anyone who opposed or delayed. By the end of his reign, the first six bays of the chapel had reached their full height and the first five bays roofed with oak and lead were actually in use. So in two years, he managed to do quite a lot. And then Henry VII and Henry VIII, the Tudors, achieved the final completion of the chapel. Henry, of course, defeated Richard III at Bosworth in 1485. And initially, he was preoccupied with bringing the country under control. And building work on the chapel ceased for another two years, despite the college's petition to the new king that the structure magnificently begun by royal munificence now stands shamefully abandoned to the site. Then in 1506, Henry came to Cambridge and the St. George's Eve service of the Knights of the Garter was held in the first five bays of the chapel and that had a timber roof, but no stone ceiling vaults. And the end was boarded up and decorated with the coats of arms of the knights printed on paper. Henry's mother, Lady Margaret Beaufort, had pledged herself to carry through the different pious projects that were begun by Henry VI. And prompted by her, Henry perceived that the new dynasty, the Tudor dynasty, needed the authority that the royal saint Henry VI could give. Because, of course, the Tudors were descended from a squire and a bastards on different sides of them. So if you trace back, the Beauforts were, were a bastard line um, of Edward III's son, John of Gaunt. And then on the Tudor side, it was Owen Tudor, a squire that Catherine of Valois married. So I'm assuming that you know all of this if you listen to the podcast or if you follow this. But if you don't, it would be worth going back and having a little look because it's a fascinating story. So the Tudors came to the throne with very little legitimacy, simply winning through battle. And they needed to have some legitimacy. They needed to show some connection to the House of Lancaster. They needed to show that they were favored by God. So it made a lot of sense for them to try to finish the chapel. So Henry decided to finish the chapel and he sent some money to pay for it. And there's actually a chest that he sent some money to pay for it in this chest that can still be seen in the chapel. In 1508, the work began on a grand scale again. Henry VII died in 1509, but the terms of his will ensured that money was provided to perform and end all the works that is not yet done in the said church. By 1512, the shell was finished and roofed throughout its length in timber and lead. Then his executors gave a further £5,000 to pay for vaulting, and by 1515, the main structure was complete. This work and most of the glazing of the windows was done during Henry VIII, who was also responsible for the screen and much of the chapel woodwork. Like I said, the areas where you can see the H and A for Henry and Anne. The windows miraculously escaped the Civil War 
And one royalist observer did claim that in inclement weather, the chapel was used as a parade ground by Cromwell's troops. Nor was it wit strange to find whole bands of soldiers training and exercising in the royal chapel of King Henry VI. That's what they said. And then once again, King's College Chapel escaped unscathed during the Second World War, when the glass of most of the windows was actually removed for safety, and they decided to take the opportunity to clean and repair and take pictures of it. An interesting note is from the beginning of King's history, the provost was in theory elected by the fellows, but until 1689, every provost was in practice nominated by the crown. But in 1689, the fellows succeeded in asserting their rights by refusing to accept William III's nominee, Isaac Newton of Trinity. So now at this point, we're going to go across the road to Clare College. Clare's the second oldest of the old schools. It was founded in 1326 and generously endowed by Lady Elizabeth de Clare. She was a granddaughter of Edward I. In 1336, Edward III granted license to his cousin, Elizabeth de Burgh, to establish a collegium. The word originally meant a corporation of scholars, and it was the first instance referred to unspecifically as the House of the University of Cambridge. It became known as Clare Hall in 1339, and the present simplified title just Simply Clare dates from 1856. The original endowment consisted of estates at Great Grandson and Duxford and provided for the maintenance of a maximum of 15 scholars, of whom no more than six were bound strictly by priestly orders. Provision was also made for 10 poor scholars, paupers, or students who were to be maintained by the college up to the age of 20. In 1359, a year before her death, Lady Elizabeth de Clare set up a set of statutes by which the new college was to be governed. And it shows a really enlightened attitude towards learning and university education. And it's actually guided the college for nearly seven centuries. The knowledge of letters, when it hath been found out, it sendeth forth its students who have tasted of its sweetness, fit and proper members in God's church and state to rise to diverse heights according to the claim of their deserts. The history of Clare in the later 14th century is not well recorded because there was a fire in 1521 and that destroyed most of the college's early documents. And we have just barely a list of the people who were the college's masters. In the 16th century, of course, during the reign of Henry VIII, the nation was in turmoil because of all the religious reform that was going on and the rejection of the Pope. And as I mentioned before, with the White Horse Tavern, the debate in Cambridge was fierce, as fierce as anywhere. And From that, one of the principal leaders of the Reformation, one of Clare's greatest alumni, Hugh Latimer, was elected as a fellow of Clare in 1510 while he was still an undergraduate. He was renowned for his blameless life, his tact, his oratory, and he soon rose to national prominence thanks to his preaching in favor of reform. He became a royal chaplain to Henry VIII in 1534 and to Anne Boleyn. He was the Bishop of Worcester in 1535. He was one of the king's advisors who most supported the disillusion. And at the time of the Counter-Reformation under Queen Mary, he refused to recant his beliefs and he was burned at the stake in Oxford in 1555. Although he is known through history as one of the Oxford martyrs, he was in fact a product of Cambridge and a fellow of Clare. In spite of the turmoil going on in the 16th century, Clare Hall continued to grow in size and in wealth. It received more land grants. It kept building. It built more buildings throughout the time period up through into the 18th century 
And it's one of the most beautiful colleges that there is. In fact, interestingly, there was a scholar called George Ruggle, who was distinguished in Spanish, French and Italian, he wrote a play called Ignoramus in 1615. It was an attack on lawyers. And it was so much admired by King James the first that he returned to Cambridge to see it a second time. When he died, Ruggle bequeathed to Clare the collection of books, which forms the core of the present fellows library. William Whiston was Isaac Newton's successor as Lucian Professor of Mathematics in the university. And John Moore, sometime Bishop of Ely, is best known for a large collection of medieval manuscripts that he bequeathed to the university library. So you've seen Claire, you've seen Kings, Queens, Peterhouse. You're probably ready for some lunch now, right? So you could head back up to the market and across past the shops. You could visit Sydney Sussex, which was founded in 1596 under the terms of the will of Francis Sidney, Countess of Sussex, after whom it was named. It was from its inception, a Protestant foundation, um, leaning towards Puritanism. And in fact, one of the first students was Oliver Cromwell. Lady Sussex left 5,000 pounds along with some plate to found the new college. And it was called, it was meant to be called Lady Francis Sidney Sussex College. Oliver Cromwell, like I said, was one of the first students, though he never graduated because his father became ill. His skull is now buried beneath the college's anti-chapel. So Sydney Sussex is definitely worth a look as you're wandering around. It's If you walk through the market, it's on the other side of the market. But for those of us who are interested in choral music in Cambridge, Sydney Sussex has one of the best choral programs. Musicologist Dr. David Skinner is the choral director and they've also brought the famous contemporary composer Eric Whitaker to teach, and he had a residency there as well. So you can visit, enjoy the beautiful gardens and buildings. You just need to report to the Porter's Lodge when you arrive so they can keep track. So like I said, with all this walking and visiting, you might want to take a little rest and have some lunch. You can either visit one of the chain shops. There's a Pret-a-Manger. There's a lot of different sandwich shops right in the center, or you can wander around King's Parade into Trinity Street and find something less chain-like. It's up to you, but there are a lot of great options around here, and I'm sure you're going to find something wonderful. And then you're going to head back up to Great St. Mary's towards Clare, and you're going to turn right going up to Trinity and Quayside. You're going to notice Trinity because of the statue of Henry VIII in the Great Gate. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But for now, let me tell you about Trinity College. It's really interesting because it was founded by Henry VIII in 1546, and he merged two existing colleges, Michael House, which was founded in 1324, and King's Hall, established by Edward II in 1317. Its most famous student perhaps has been Isaac Newton. At the time it was founded, Henry was seizing the church lands, the dissolution of the monasteries. And the universities of Oxford and Cambridge were both religious institutions and they were quite rich. So they expected to be next in line. And the king passed an act of parliament that allowed him to suppress and confiscate property of any college that he wished. The universities tried to use their contacts to plead with his sixth wife, sixth wife who was who was with him then, Catherine Parr. The queen persuaded her husband to not close them down, but to create a new college. The king didn't want to use royal funds, so instead he combined the two colleges of King's Hall and Michael House and seven hostels, and then he turned that into Trinity. Its first four masters were actually educated at St. John's, and it took until around 1575 for the college's application numbers to draw even. And that's a position that they have remained since the Civil War. So the main thing you're going to see with Trinity is the Great Gate just on the street. It's the main entrance to the college leading to the Great Court. A statue of the founder, Henry VIII, stands in a niche above the doorway. So this is interesting. In his hand, he holds a table leg instead of the original sword. And there's legends and myths everywhere as to how the switch was carried out and by whom. 
1704, the university's first astronomical observatory was built on the top of the gatehouse. And beneath the founder's statue, Henry VIII's statue, there's the coats of arms of Edward III, the founder of King's Hall, and those of his five sons who survived to maturity, as well as William of Hatfield, whose shield is blank because he died as an infant before being granted arms. So you can look inside at the great court that was built around 1599 to 1608. It was the brainchild of Thomas Neville. He demolished several existing buildings on the site, including almost the entirety of the former College of Michael House. The King's Hostel, which was built 1377 to 1416, is located to the north of the Great Court behind the clock tower. And this is, along with the King's Gate, the sole remaining building from King's Hall. One of the most famous parts of Cambridge is the Wren Library. It was built between 1676 and 1695 by Christopher Wren. And Wren is one of Cambridge's most famous libraries. And in its possessions are two of Shakespeare's first folios, a 14th century manuscript of the vision of Pierce Plowman, and letters written by Isaac Newton. Below the building are the Wren Library cloisters, where students have a view of the Great Hall in front of them, and the river and the backs directly behind. So that takes me to the backs. No trip to Cambridge would be complete without a wander around the gorgeous bridges and the area known as the backs. You can head down any of the little alleyways. Many buildings have little chalk markings with arrows pointing to the river as well. And there's a good passage in between Kings and Clare as well. You'll probably have seen it. My favorite section is outside Trinity, where there's a nice area to sit and look at the Wren Library. And it's right next to a really sweet bend in the river where there are often punting accidents. So that's fun to watch because it's like a big bend and people can't handle it. And the boats run into each other. It gets narrow and it's kind of fun sometimes in the summer to sit and watch people almost fall into the river. The area of the backs from Magdalen Street Bridge in the north to Silver Street in the south you can see the rear grounds of the following colleges. You can see Magdalen, St. John's, Trinity, Trinity Hall, Clare, Kings, and Queens. And much of the land was used historically by the colleges for grazing livestock or growing fruit. And the river was also, of course, an important commercial thoroughfare. There was a mill at Silver Street at one point in the 16th century. Over time, the colleges planted avenues of trees, they built sturdier bridges, and there's always been debate about what to do with the backs. At one point in 1779, there was a landscape architect called Lancelot Brown. He wanted to have a plan to create country-style parkland with its focus on King's College's Gibbs buildings. And it would have involved removing avenues, transforming the river into a lake, and planting clumps of trees to screen the other colleges. Just seems kind of rude. It was never actually implemented, probably because it also would have removed the historic college boundaries and three important bridges. So in 1995, the English Heritage listed the backs as a grade one historic park as well. So you need to have some time to enjoy that. While you're sitting outside enjoying the scenery, watching the punters, let's say you have a hankering to go floating on a boat yourself. There are plenty of spots along the river where you can rent a boat, but if you go back up Trinity Street, heading away from the market, you're going to pass St. John's College and you'll get to Bridge Street. On the corner, you'll see the Round Church built in the 12th century. It's open for visitors. They have exhibitions as well as a library. It's amazing. Go in and have a look and then head down towards the river. At Keyside, you'll see a large boat rental company and you can get yourself set up. Early on, water travel was common in this area because of the river, obviously, and the swampiness of the land. Punts are square-ended boats with flat bottoms, no keel, and they're propelled with a long boat. Somebody stands in the back and uses a pole to push it. They were suited to the really shallow waters and flat waters of the Fenland, and they were workboats for regional trades. Pleasure punting began to take off early in the 20th century. So you can rent a boat with a guide to do the punting for you, 
or you can have a go of it yourself and see how you manage. The water isn't very deep, so it won't be a huge hassle if you fall overboard, you likely won't drown. (laughs) You'll likely just be embarrassed and I'll be sitting at the bend in the river outside the outside the Wren Library watching for you, and then I'll laugh. <sighs> so one of the most important things about Cambridge to me is Coral Evensong. Coral Evensong in Cambridge. Coral Evensong, for those of you that don't know, is a very special service in the Anglican Church. It's about 45 minutes long. It's mostly sung. It came out of combining... Vespers and Compline during the Reformation into one service, Evensong, and it was officially laid out in Cramer's Book of Common Prayer. It's known as a service, it's known as the atheist's favorite service, simply because it requires very little of the participant other than to enjoy the music. It gives back so much more than it asks. In Cambridge, the standard of singing is world class, the setting is striking. There's really very little required of you to enjoy even song services. It's um it's not a very demanding service. You just sit and you listen to the music and you enjoy it. And participating in this living tradition is a wonderful way to experience the life of the different colleges of Cambridge from within. So most of the colleges have their own even song services. They're sung on Sundays and weekdays and The service, like I said, because of the high proportion of music, it's accessible to those who wouldn't usually go to a church service. Lord Rees, the astronomer royal and former master of Trinity College, Cambridge, he regards himself an agnostic. He says, quote, attending Evensong makes me feel especially mindful of the spacious firmament on high, its wonder and its mystery. John Rutter, who composed the anthem for the royal wedding of the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, Prince William, says that choral evensong is my favorite way of spending an hour with glorious music in a glorious building. Pretty much every school has their own evensong service, but always remember to read the websites or call in advance to ensure that these times are correct. So I'm going to give you the times. Also remember that you won't have as many options outside of term time because the students and the scholars are all on break. So you're going to want to go during term time. And these are the times for the colleges that we talked about. So for Peterhouse, it's sung twice weekly during full term, Wednesdays at 6.30s and Sunday at 6. For Queens, Sunday from 6 to 7, Wednesdays from 6.15 to 6.45. At King's, choral choral services are held at 5.30 p.m. every day from Monday to Saturday, and then 10.30 and 3.30 on Sunday. So 5.30 every day, and then 10.30 and 3.30. The full choir sings Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And on Monday, Evensong is sung by King's Voices, the college's mixed voice choir. And on Wednesday, it's sung by the men's voices only. At Clare, choral Evensong is Sunday at 6 and Tuesday and Thursday at 6.15. And also on Sunday, the service is preceded by a recital, a preparation for worship at 525, to which visitors are welcome. At Sydney Sussex, there's Latin choral vespers on Wednesday at 630. There's choral evensong Friday at 630 and Sunday at 630. At Trinity, there's choral evensong on Sunday at 615. Then there's choral evensong Tuesday at 615. There's Sung Compline, Wednesday at 9.45 p.m., Choral Evensong, Thursday at 6.15, and that's it for Trinity. So I have reached the end of my notes here, you guys. We've gone on for an hour, and I'm so glad that you came along with me to Cambridge. I really hope that this guide has been useful to you. If you're planning a trip, you're thinking about going Um, if you want some ideas of things to do, I hope that this has been useful. And like I said, if you are there, if you've taken me there, (laughs) please take pictures and send them to me. I'd love to see. So thank you so much. I hope that it has been useful to you. If you don't already listen to the Renaissance English History Podcast, if you've just found me, then please check out the Renaissance English History Podcast at englandcast.com. Thank you so much. Happy traveling. Bye-bye.